Hi everyone, welcome uh, to this escapist movie podcast. As you can see, we've gone full mank here. <laughs> so I do we have, also... Oh, sorry, yeah, I mean, how do I follow that up? Am I, am I Orson Welles then in this scenario, harassing Jack down the phone, forcing him to do something against his will, and then somehow taking credit for it? So yes, <laughs> I'm apparently Orson Welles, but the version who appears in Mank. <laughs> If we do, we need to talk to match the filter. We oh. gotta be like, ah, well, we gotta talk about these Oscars. <laughs> yes, yeah, that would be great. That would be great. We need so many cigarettes uh, if we if we want to get that full <laughs> mank feel. But hi, everybody. Uh, so this week we are going to be talking about mank, obviously. Uh, some general Oscar talk, as now we know the winners, and then we will move on to Mortal Kombat, the new Mortal Kombat, not the old Mortal Kombat. Who? Hello and welcome. This is the Escapist Movie Podcast. Uh, it's funny that uh, Smart Smears says, I know I'm uncultured since I saw the black and white and thought Zack Snyder instead. Well, <laughs> I think both are both are fully masturbatory projects. So I think that's a great intro. Uh, Darren, I like so Mank. I'm coming in. I'm coming in with some personal. No, I don't want to call them biases, tastes. I have some taste preferences. In general, I do not like biopics. I always feel like they don't give enough information about the actual subject. And, you know, like, it's it's just not all what I want. And I have a personal distaste for writers who are writing about writers writing. I find that incredibly masturbatory. Obviously, there are exceptions to the rule. But Mank. I I mean, Jack, would you go so far as to say that... Oh, my internet connection is so... We go so far as to say that one cannot hope to capture a life in two hours. One can only hope to capture an impression of that life. Is that that really what the crux of your argument there, perhaps? Hmm... I feel like that's a pretty good summary. Man, if only they had written that exact line into Mank to get rid of all of that hogwall. Oh, Illustrate the point. <laughs> and and put it in the trailer so oh, it's part oh, of your yeah, expectation. Exactly. And people and people thought yeah. uh, people thought Mortal Kombat took itself too seriously. <laughs> wow. That's fired apparently. Um Okay, okay, okay. Let, let's let's talk about Mank then, because Mank is the movie that it's become kind of. It is the movie this award season. It has become kind of, which is interesting. It's become the dog's body, which is odd because I, I assumed it would have been Aaron Sorkin's Trial of the Chicago Seven, but somehow that seemed to just scrape by. Although it is notable, Trial of the Chicago Seven was the only Best Picture nominee not to win a single Academy Award last night. So you know, mm-hmm. take it where you can. But Mank has kind of become the punching bag. And I, you know, I get it. It is the most stereotypical award season movie. It's the black and white prestige piece about the making of a movie that everybody in Hollywood loves, starring an old white guy who already has an Oscar, playing a character who is several years, so several decades younger than he is, acting opposite women who are also several decades younger than he is. And it's about, as you mentioned, the art of writing and all this sort of stuff. And it's an auteur project. It is a Netflix project from David Fincher, famously uh, written by David Fincher's father. It was famously written back in 1993, around the time 
time that, you know, Fincher was working on Alien 3, they couldn't get it working. His father, who was a writer himself, passed away. And Fincher basically went to Netflix and he was like, I want to do, you know, I'm doing Mindhunter and it's getting kind of boring. Netflix was like, okay, fine, we'll give you a break. Anything else you'd like to do? Opens up the drawer, blows the dust off. It's like, well, I've got this script here. How'd you like to turn this into a prestige Oscar piece? And, you know, I see all of those arguments. And on top of those arguments, you have the compounding argument on top of it that, you know, it is a historical film that is pointedly a historical. A large part of Jack Fincher's research for this movie was based on Pauline Kael's famous Raising Cain article and argument, which basically advanced the, the case that, you know, that Orson Welles was not the sole architect of Citizen Kane. Mm -hmm. And it was based on interviews and statements that were later largely proven to be, let's say, factually elastic, if we're going to be diplomatic about it. <laughs> uh, but were heavily disputed and are have mostly been largely disproven and the entire base of the article has been thrown out. It's been suggested that Kale herself just had an axe to grind with Welles and was using Mankiewicz as a prism through which to do it. And all of that is entirely fair. And all of that is the baggage with which the movie comes. And I completely understand and respect that. And I completely get that it's not everybody's cup of tea. And I also kind of like slightly resent the fact that you seem to have put me in a position where I made you do this. Mm -hmm. I was like, I, when we talked about this, you were like, I don't want to do this. And I'm like, yeah, Jack, you don't want to do it. You shouldn't do it. I like it, but you won't. And you're like, no, 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 we're doing this. And it's your idea. And I'm like, damn it, I have to own this now. So fine. I'm going to fucking own this, all right? But why, no, and why Darren likes Mank despite the entire two minutes Darren spent explaining why it's perfectly reasonable to say fuck Mank, okay? <laughs> why Darren likes Mank is very, very simple. It is a wonderful mess of paradoxes and contradictions. It is a movie that is several things simultaneously that are seemingly incompatible with one another and yet exist in this weird balance that I can't quite understand, but I find incredibly appealing. It is an anti-auteur statement, philosophically. Like, let's ignore the question of, like, how accurate it is historically, because many biopics aren't actually that historically accurate, for example. You know, many historical epics take huge liberties with the truth because film is not a historical textbook. Film is a narrative form. This is a story. You are telling a story. And the point of that story is what you as a writer are making with it. And the point that this movie is making is that film doesn't materialize out of a director's head fully formed. We live in a culture, and we've lived in culture arguably since the end of the studio system. Pointedly, this is set in the studio system, but arguably since, you know, New Hollywood, where the auteur, as, as described by French film critics, is the sole guiding light on a film. You talk about Michael Mann movies, still like for Nolan movies. You don't talk about, like, the importance of Lee Smith as an editor in shaping those movies. People have only just begun to realize that Thelma Schoonmacher is a huge part of what makes Martin Scorsese such a fantastic filmmaker. People are only now kind of coming around to, like, the importance of uh, Margaret Sixel, for example, in editing Fury road and how mm. she contributed as much to that film as say her husband uh, George Miller did and all that sort of stuff like I, I get that and I think the movie is making that point because this is a movie from arguably one of the handful of actual auteurs that exist in Hollywood at the moment David Fincher you look at a David Fincher film you know what it looks like you know what it feels like you know what it sounds like even here, which is a black and white period film, which is miles removed, arguably, from like his work on, say, Seven, his work on, say, you know, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, it still has that texture that you associate with Fincher. It's shot on digital. It's incredibly cold. It's very still. It's very careful in its compositions. It's very meticulously put together. It feels like a Fincher film. It is an auteur project. And at its core, though, it is an auteur project about how auteurism is bollocks at, at its core. It's about the idea that, you know, Citizen Kane 
the greatest film in Hollywood history. You know, many people would argue. And I go, yeah, fine. I, I'm not going to complain too much about that. I'm not going to, like, call you up on that one. Fair play. You want to call it the best film ever. It is probably the best film ever. We're not going to get into that. But, like, everybody's like, yes, it, it was Orson Welles came to town. He reinvented cinema. He came up with a new way of making movies. He This manifested, like, this manifested Welles's vision on screen. And this movie says, yeah, but even that didn't materialize from nothing. That came from a script, that came from ideas, that came from the life experience of his writer. And yes, it was collaborative. And yes, it was not entirely Mank who did it. But at the same time, the people who make Hollywood function are the people like Mank and the people like Marion Davis, the people who are day players, the people who put in their hours, do the work, don't become stars, don't have cults built around them, and end up kind of becoming, you know, they're they're the, the grease that makes the machine work. They're the, mm-hmm. the monkey, the organ grinder's monkey and stuff like that. And so the fact that Fincher is doing this, I find incredibly fascinating. And just one more thing before we jump in, because you, you set this off. You lit this fuse, Jack. I'm sorry. No, um, I lit it. And now I'm going to revel in your explosion. By the way, I, uh, this is, I, 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 I love... So far, your your defense. I, I I hate to say defense only because I put you on the <laughs> defensive. But I think all all of what you're saying is incredibly true, and and I love it. I this is all I do. I'm just here to wind you up, Darren, and watch you go. <laughs> <laughs> all right. What I, what I will say though, like, and, and to continue that, like I said, paradoxes because it's not just that paradox. It's a host of other paradoxes as well. Mm. This is a movie about the old studio system, about like the old Hollywood institutions, MGM, Paramount, Universal, all these sort of institutions, these grand old men of Hollywood, but it's made by Netflix, the disruptor that is coming in and going to demolish and destroy these institutions. Mm -hmm. It is a movie about classic cinema, but it's shot on digital. And you can tell it's shot on digital. It doesn't really disguise the fact that it's shot on digital, even with the additions of things like, say, the cigarette burns up in the corner, the little flex on the film screen. They're all too perfectly placed and too perfectly positioned. It doesn't convincingly look like film. It instead looks like a facsimile of film. It exists in the uncanny valley. And I think that's intentional. I think that's deliberate. If Fincher wanted to shoot on film, Fincher could say to Netflix, I want to shoot on film. Mm -hmm. He didn't. And I think it positions the movie deliberately, again, in that paradox that uncanny valley of like old and new and here we are and there we are. And again, the film's politics, huge battleground, not going to jump into them because that's a whole different debate. (laughs) The movie very pointedly and perhaps too pointedly says, oh, hey, look, it's funny how there's this news. He literally says at one point, it isn't news and it isn't real, almost as if to say this movie is about news that is fake. Fake news, if you will. And it has like at one point, Bill Nighy pops up as Upton Sinclair, like to illustrate what it, the, the context in which this exists. And yes, it is incredibly heavy handed. Yes, it has the subtlety of a sledgehammer. <laughs> no, nobody watching this is going to miss what the movie has to say about this particular thing. Mm-hmm. But I will say like the thing that like, the thing that I really do admire about it is that so many movies about Hollywood, and so many movies about the classic studio system are openly nostalgic. They're about how, man, Hollywood used to be great. Hollywood used to be this dream factory. And you would just go there and these things would happen and directors would have freedom and they could tell these stories that they wanted to tell and they could like have artistic integrity and all that just got like washed out the window and it's all lost and something disappeared. You know, they they don't make movies like they used to anymore is the standard Payenne. And one of the things I really like about Mank is that it is a movie that from a distance to the touch 
looks like the kind of movie they don't make anymore. But then you get up really close and it's very clearly, no, this is more like a movie we make now than a movie that we used to make and complain we don't make anymore. But the film in dealing with Hollywood, its big argument is basically, no, Hollywood hasn't changed. Hollywood was never innocent. Hollywood was never some idealized like paradise. And more than that, the problems facing Hollywood today, the problems facing the movies that we make today, the problems facing culture that we make today didn't like materialize out of nowhere, you know, arbitrarily, let's say five years ago to pick a number. I know that number is loaded, but let's say five years ago, let's say 10 years ago, those problems didn't materialize out of thin air. And we're talking, whether we're talking culturally, whether we're talking about in terms of film production, those numbers, those problems were always there. And like you watch Mank and it feels like a movie about Hollywood today and very pointedly. There's a moment where they go in to pitch a movie to David O. Selznick. Mm -hmm. And they're pitching a universal monster movie from the 30s. They could just as easily be pitching a superhero movie from the day. There's a moment where like Meyer, uh, Louis V. Meyer is walking through the backyard, back lots of MGM. And he's talking about like, what's great about movies from a business point of view is the fact that you know you, you pay your money, you buy a product, you don't get to keep the product. All you get to keep is your memory of the product. Mm -hmm. And you look at that and you listen to that conversation and it's like, that's why digital and streaming are big markets today in like 2019 as opposed to like 1934 or whenever that sequence was set. I think that was set 32 or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like the argument that the movie makes is that all of these things that are happening in Hollywood have always been happening. And what's happening now isn't a disruption. It isn't a nightmare. It isn't a new paradigm. It isn't an apocalypse bearing down. It's just an acceleration of all of these trends. Like there's a wonderful moment where they're walking through San Simeon and like Mank makes the point that like when we think of the old studios and we think of the old studio system, we think of like that's what Hollywood used to be. All of those people who ran those studios like Louis B. Mayer answered to the money men across the country. They answered to the money men in New York, just like Sony is now like just a media arm of some larger empire. Mm -hmm. Just like Warner Brothers is just like a content slow for AT&T, for example. Things like, you know, you know, Universal existing as part of NBC and Comcast. Like these things or these problems facing the media landscape today are not new. And one of the things I like about Mank is that it looks from to the surface like an old fashioned nostalgic, man, remember Citizen Kane? You remember Citizen Kane, don't you? And instead it's like, actually, Turns out things really aren't as different, aren't that different from what they were in the 30s. And I, I like that aspect. And I'm sorry, I've talked far, far too long. I apologize for that. I apologize to Jesse. I apologize to Jack. And I apologize to the listeners. But I feel like I had to state my it's, case. It's almost, Darren, like people are here to listen to you talk. And <laughs> oh, is I'm that not, hey, look, oh, I'm no, okay. I'm, I'm no Bill Nye the science guy. I'm sorry. I know Upton Sinclair Bill, here. Bill, Bill, oh, sorry. Bill. <laughs> I was like, by the way, uh, you know, I grew up watching Bill Nye the Science Guy, as many people did. And you hear his voice before you see the actor playing uh, Upton Sinclair. And uh, and uh, absolutely. I was like, that's Bill Nye. That's Bill Nye the Science Guy. And we see him. And it's so great. Uh <laughs> No, wonderful, uh, wonderful, like, summation of your love of Mank. Jesse, where do, where are you falling on the Mankness of Mank? Are you cranky about Mank? <laughs> I wouldn't say I'm cranky about it, no. Uh, you know, it was, it was fine. <laughs> I think... <laughs> I, Good night, I everybody. Like you're... <laughs> Yeah, we're done. <laughs> how, how much am I getting paid for this? I earned it. Um, 
I think the the points that you were making are totally valid. And I, I appreciate your understanding of the Hollywood situation back then, now, how they compare, how they contrast. And I think that gives you a really interesting perspective on that. And that you come into it with some things that I did not know and some things that I was like, yeah, I remember that. And some things like, yeah, I agree with that too. Um, however, it, as a movie about the, that kind of what you were saying where it's not about a, the director made this movie. Uh, I personally think they did an ass job of proof of that point because the movie's about Mank. And sure, it's not saying that Orson Welles made this movie, but then the movie itself is saying Mank made this movie. <laughs> and like where, very where you're giving credit to people who are who are greasing the wheels and are all part of you know this important thing. And, and I totally agree. The the director is one part of the machine that makes something great. The writer is one part, the uh the editor, the craft service person who pays attention to who likes what and keeps people happy on yeah. set so they give their best performance are an important part of the system mm -hmm. that, of, that makes that. Yeah. And that's not what it really focused on. It really focused on Meg. And if that's the point of the movie, I felt like it it didn't serve that, which is- I feel like the Marion Davis plotline underscores that though, because Marion Davis is this actor who like worked really hard, never really made it, never really materialized. And like one of the big recurring themes, sorry, I'm sorry to cut across you, Jesse, but one no, of the recurring good. themes is the idea that like, that like Mank and Citizen Kane, and again, one of the things about the history of Citizen Kane is Wells made the same argument that like Mank did, which is, ha, huh, the, the, the reason how you know this character isn't Marion Davis is because she's so stupid. That's how you know that I wasn't insisting that Marion Davis was stupid. Yeah, no, Citizen Kane, yeah, maybe maybe a little passive aggressive there, just a little bit. But like one of the things that I like about Mank is it, like it's it's focus on Marion Davis as a person with agency who never quite made it, who never became the star that arguably she was supposed to be or destined to be, and how she exists on the march as well. Like, I, I don't know, maybe I'm being too generous, but I, I think that scenes like that and scenes like where Mayor goes into the room and he's like, everybody's gonna take a half pay cut. Everybody's gonna take a half pay cut. And you're like, the grips, grips can't afford to take a half pay cut. You're gonna take a half pay cut. I don't know, I, I thought that got at the kind of democratization. I, well, and you know, it's what it is, is uh, what it is, is both frustratingly. So Jesse, I is what I, I I'm more with Jesse on this, which is, which is no, they, they do yeah. a fantastic job that, that sequence in which they are basically improv cold pitching a monster movie, having written nothing, so much so where the new guy comes in and is like, just follow our lead, and they're just riffing off of what a movie is, pretending that they've written it, is a wonderful demonstration of like how movies are made. It's a collaborative art form. But would you say it's director proof? <laughs> right? Yeah. Oh, or even so much so as like Manx's relationship with his stenographer, with his nurse, like with his producer who helps keep him on track, with Orson Welles, who, uh, you know, is a bit of a contrast to him. Like it does a really good job of showing all of the people that Mank works with. But it also is a movie about Mank. And so, like, I think I think basically I'll be middle ground here where I say it's a little bit muddled, but I can see it both ways. It definitely does say, no, this this film was birthed out of Mank's experience. And every, literally everyone in the movie says what a great writer Mank is. Uh, 
but it yeah, also do. shows the collaborative. So, like, I'm going to I guess what I'll say is it, the film is trying to have its cake and eat it, too. OK, counterpoint to that. Just counterpoint. I'm I ready. Like, I feel like the fact that this is a movie about Citizen Kane, like, means that, like, no matter how much this movie is like, yeah, Mank was the mensch. You like no matter how hard the movie pumps that gas, it's only so far you can wrest credit back from Orson Welles. Like that—that's the thing—is that like because we already come into this, like even if you've never seen Citizen Kane, mm-hmm. you know that Citizen Kane is this grand statement of authorship. And I feel like, and again, like Jesse, Jesse, and you are right. This is Mank's story. This is all <laughs> Mank all the time. Like, and again, like he even comes in, like that big speech he gives at like the dinner, mm-hmm. and he's all Charles Foster Kane's dinner. He's all like, oh, by the way, sorry, not Charles Foster Kane, sorry, Hearst dinner. I got the mix up in my head. But where he's like, no, 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 no. You know, like it's got to be a story. It's got to have an arc for the audience to follow. You know, you got to tell a story the way that you tell a story. Mm-hmm. But I feel like you come into you come into Mank, even if you haven't seen Citizen Kane knowing that like Citizen Kane is this work of genius from Orson Welles. So even if you just go full throttle, no, it was completely bank. It was all bank all the time. You still end up in a half ground. I, I think like, mm. and again, Jesse's, Jesse's, you know, Jesse's fair. Maybe you need to know more about like classic Hollywood, but I, I don't, I think Kane is universal. You know, I mean like the Simpsons, even if you've just watched the Simpsons, you've absorbed enough Citizen Kane, That's I true. think to kind of get that perhaps. Sorry, and I, I apologize. I cut across Jesse far too much. I'm sorry. I, uh, no, you're good. <laughs> I, I, I guess my counter to your counter argument is Citizen Kane, and maybe maybe this is my own biases at play. Citizen Kane is a famous piece of film history, not necessarily because of the writing, but more so it embodied the new wave of cinematography using the camera to also tell the story. And so it's like, yes... You know, yes, it's Orson Welles movies, but it's also like the the uh, the flashpoint to util- finally utilizing the tools of the medium has less to do with the writing. But I, I get what you're saying. I get what you're saying. Yeah, but I, I get that. Like, but saying it also has to do with the writing in that case, like isn't saying it's all to do with the writing. It's just saying, no, this is also part of like, I, I, I don't know. I feel like there's enough weight on Citizen Kane. And this is the thing. Again, this is this is a tangent upon a tangent, and the response to Mank is fascinating. But like before Mank was released, before I I did not know that Orson Welles had like stands, like like One Direction fans online. One of the most interesting things about watching the reaction to Mank has been like the reaction of people who are like, "This movie's coming for Orson Welles. We're real coming for it." Like people like say Mark Harris who are like, "This is a this is a disres- great disrespect to like the memory of Orson Welles," and you're like. You know, I I can see why if like Orson Welles were just a guy who, who made a film, you might be like, yeah, 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 yeah. No, you're, you're right. His, his legacy is in danger. You, you need to be more careful with it. But I feel like it's Orson Welles. He can take it. He's a big guy. Like, he's, you know, he's done enough in cinema that you can stand to have one movie that goes, you know what? Maybe Orson Welles didn't do absolutely everything. And I feel like that, that's the kind of... Like, between the two you know yeah. i feel like orson wells didn't do craft services on citizen kane to, to get back to jesse's kind of <laughs> absolutely v- very bob kane bill finger kind of situation here bill finger no sorry what's it oh i'm trying to think oh crap who was the who was the batman uh illustrator oh was it bill finger jerry robson jerry robson who invented the joker is it no. Oh, okay, Bill Finger. Is that is that who I'm thinking of who only recently started getting credit as co-creator of Batman? 
uh, he, I'm for ashamed the yeah, that I don't remember their name. There was a there was a there was a little documentary about it. He he first got his he he got his first acknowledgement of basically creating most of what we know of Batman in I want to say Batman versus Superman. Oh, it was Bill Finger. Thank you. Chat chat knows what I'm talking yeah. about. Uh, <laughs> chat knows what I'm talking about because I can't remember anything. Chat remembers it for me. So thank you, chat. Um uh, yes, um Ooh, man. Oh, Mank. Oh, man. Well, uh, you know, uh, while we, while we talk, oh, Mank, you're so manky. While we talk about Mank, something that I know we, we chatted a little bit before we started streaming and I wanted to touch on it right now as Mank just won an Oscar for best cinematography. And in my opinion, I think it's really well deserved as they did a very good job of creating a hyper realism of what a movie in that era would have been made like a very Wellsian movie <laughs> as far as cinematography is concerned. And so I, I liked the cinematography a lot though. I agree. It was like, it was very like purposefully like, and eh, we're making it look like an old movie and just got scratches, yeah? got scratches and they're, they're mathematically positioned in such a way that they appear random, mm. but you can kind of tell that they're not. Yeah. Um, I, it, the young, I think Jesse has, a. we talked about, I think Jesse has takes on this actually. Yeah. Cause I, I thought the cinematography was beautiful mm. because I also think the cinematography in Citizen Kane is mostly pretty great. Like, Oh, big surprise. Hot take there. <laughs> whoa. I know. Whoa. Uh, <laughs> wrote my thesis on film school years on that one. coming in right there. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but and i think it's really cool and i think there is definitely an art form to having to reproduce that mm -hmm. and having to not only reproduce it like shot for shot but to make it feel like that without actually copying it mm. that is absolutely an astounding achievement and i do not want to undersell that at the same time I think it's kind of crappy to win best cinematography because you're working directly off of someone else's work and you are trying to interpret, copy, and evolve that form versus other people that are arguably trying to do their own thing. Mm, that that's a really that's a very interesting sentiment, just because as as someone who, you know, is really into that kind of nerdy thing. You know, the point of cinematography in, in my feeling is that it's supposed to heighten the, the theming of the movie or the scene uh, that, mm -hmm. that you are filming. And so like presenting us with a film that is a rough facsimile of what a Wellsian film would be really does get you into that old Hollywood mindset. And, you know, like the, the, the really uh, wonderful, like uh, what do you, what do you call those? The, the, the way they fade out. I don't know how they fade out, but I love it. Iris, is, is the Ooh, Iris fade. I, I bet that's it. Like mm. they do these wonderful Iris fades when a scene is, cl is closing. They have very smooth, obvious dolly shots because that's what they would have back in the old studio days. And it really does help transport you back to the the uh, 30s and 40s when the movie takes place. And I, I don't know. I just think, it. yes, they're cribbing, but they're also utilizing their tools to help tell their story. I think that's valid. Like, I don't like, be like, no, I'm like. <laughs> Uh, Damn you, cause, Jack. Because <laughs> again, like 
as you were saying, they are trying to interpret that and they aren't doing it exactly the same way. Like Darren, you were saying they're using digital. That's a whole, you do have to treat that differently than film. Mm -hmm. The uh, like amount of detail that they're able to get is going to be different. Uh, how sound is going to sound, even though they try to replicate that as well, which I, I like. I loved that. Um, yes. Yeah. Like the mono. Yeah. The mono track. <laughs> yeah. There's, there is so much to it that is artistic and takes a lot of effort. And thus I don't want to undercut it, but it's still like, but, but is it as good as someone who did <laughs> that sort of effort to be original? Hmm. That's that's the question, right? That's the interesting yeah. thing. And ooh, and uh, you know, obviously not. Thanks, Academy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, and like, well, I think that was part of the something somebody gets everything kind of feel of this Oscars, where like the Oscars. Like, I have a big, I'm a big fan of the year where nothing really dominates mm. and everybody gets a little prize and everybody gets to go home apart from you, Aaron Sorkin and try the Chicago seven, but you know, Hey, tough breaks, come back next year. You know, <laughs> maybe, maybe third time lead the charm, Mr. Sorkin. Um, but like, I, I kind of like that aspect of kind of sharing, sharing the love, so to speak. What I will say about Mank just, just finally, and something that Jesse and you both brought up, it's the way in which the, obviously all that stuff heightens the theming and obviously particularly the way in which it heightens the structure of the movie as well, because the film is, and again, it is not historical in any real sense. It is not a historically accurate snapshot of what actually happened during the production of Citizen Kane, to be clear. But I like that it's even kind of written in a way that approximates. And obviously, Jesse's going to say, and he's going to be entirely right. It steals a lot of the structure of Citizen Kane as well, where it's like, let us show you the flashbacks that explain in intricate detail exactly why this man is the way that he is right now. Um, now, to be fair... Um, Mank at, least, Mank at least doesn't like open with, well, nobody can explain Mank and don't worry, we're never going to be able to explain why he's the way he is. And then spends the rest of the movie explaining it, which is my one problem with Citizen Kane. Like I love that Citizen Kane's like, there's no explaining of all this man's trauma and history. Nobody will know what Rosebud means. And then the film at the end is like, oh, by the way, it, it was his lead, just in case the audience is curious at home. It was <laughs> a metaphor for childhood lost. I love that aspect. Because it's very much like the audience isn't ready for like open-ended ambiguity mm -hmm. like you know if like if citizen kane had ended by not telling you what rosebud was there would have been like riots in the street or whatever you know <laughs> people people on like whatever the 1940s equivalent of twitter was would have been upset and very angry and would have insisted the movie was full of plot they holes and it's they would have put on those uh, sandwich boards and walked up and down the streets <laughs> <laughs> Like Citizen Kane is full of plot holes. I don't know why people like it so much. Um, Hearst was right, says Man with Sandwich Board. Um, but I do, I do love that even the structure of the movie mm. is, is designed to look like a production code era thing. Mm -hmm. So like the way in which the movie has this bizarrely saccharine happy ending that's almost been like forced on it, where like his writing assistant discovers that her husband, who was disappeared, presumed dead earlier in the movie, is suddenly back to life and we're all happy and let's hug. And even he gets the sequence where he gets the Oscar and he's all like, you know, I accept this Oscar like I wrote Citizen Kane without Orson Welles. Boom. Boom. Like, yeah. Like, yeah. I, I like that like the movie, the movie counts on you as an audience member being at least au fait or with it enough that you kind of don't see those elements as incredibly cheesy, corny, masturbatory and self-congratulatory that you go, actually, what they're doing is they're doing a bit. They're playing with the idea of this is how the making of Citizen Kane 
would have been told as a studio picture. Mm. I kind of like that that's woven into like the cinematography, the film production, but also even the storytelling of the script. I, I, I like that aspect. One, I what I will say is one problem though, uh, no parrot squawking right in the middle to wake my ass up. I could have really yeah. used the parrot squawking. <laughs> that was that was actually why he did it. That was why he inserted it. When Orson Welles was asked, like, why why the parakeet was there? Yes. Like, what does it mean? What's the symbolism of it? It's like, no, I figured the audience might just be nodding off. Yes. Um, <laughs> Yeah, which which is one of the most beautiful stories about the masterpiece that we know as Citizen Kane, a movie I respect heavily but don't enjoy very much. Uh, but um, what I, that was also a very subtle dig at Mank, which I thought was equally boring uh, and could have used a little loud noise <laughs> but, right But, but lacked any parakeet. Yes, exactly. Yeah, completely so, lacking in parakeet. So instead I paused it and went and got a snack because it's on Netflix. <laughs> Yeah, it's even better than a parrot squawking, really. Right. Because then you get snacks. <laughs> mm-hmm. And if you get a caffeinated a snack, snack, also wake you up. Right. That's what we needed. That's what we needed. Uh, oh, go ahead, Darren. All right. So is it time to talk about the Oscars then? Is it like, have we done enough Mank? Have we rankled enough on Mank? I I, I think we've we've exercised have all we of our- Have been frank about Mank? <laughs> I think I have thought- we taken Mank to the bank? I thought Mank was a little rank, if I'm going to be We got Mank <laughs> A bit stank. Oh, just a bit. But no, I mean, like, I also agree with Jesse, yeah. where it's yeah. like Mank is. When you were ranking your best picture nominees, did Mank sink? <laughs> did, did Mank, Mank sank? Mank, Mank sank, sank in my official ranks. <laughs> did Mank sank? Mank sank. Did it, did it sank all the way to the yeah. bottom of the tank, though? Hmm. Uh, I think it was flanked by Sonic the Hedgehog. <laughs> but. Hey, <laughs> that bad. Pretty right. dank. No, well, like Jesse said at the beginning here, like Mank is also a very competent movie. Like there, there's nothing, there's nothing that I can. <laughs> I love that. It's competent. It's very competent. No, there's, there's like, there's very little that you can pick apart as far as like structural, structural integrity of Mank. It's fine. It's a perfectly fine movie. All of, uh, of, well, just like all opinions. They're all just how I personally feel. It just wasn't for me. Darren knew that before we did this. I knew that before we did this. For me, like Mank was the surrogate. (laughs) Mank was the surrogate that was going to lead us into Oscar talk because frankly, I assumed that Mank would win more Oscars. So so I just chose one out of a hat that I didn't want to see. I didn't want to see a lot of this years. So... (laughs) Yeah, I'm with you on that and, one. And I told you it was going to be Nomadland. I, I like, I literally like when you messaged me and said we're doing yes. Mank. I was like, why aren't we doing Nomadland? Because I also didn't want to see Nomadland. <laughs> like, because because that's how it is. But yeah, it won. All right, hold on. You guys, uh, you you two have to talk and fill time while I get rid of the black and white filter as we uh, transition <laughs> over into general Oscar talk. To modern day. Oh, okay. mm-hmm. So, Jesse, what was your big takeaway from the Oscars? Are you happy? Are you sad? Uh, like, are you impressed? Did what you want win? Did what you expect win? What was your big kind of like, I, yeah, I'm just throwing ideas out there. Just go for it. Mm. Let me tell you about my experience with the Oscars this year. Uh, I was told I was doing this podcast or asked if I could do it. And so I looked up WTF was even in the Oscars, realized I haven't seen any of these. I've only heard of one of these. <laughs> I've heard of Judas and the Black Messiah. I, I didn't know. I didn't know Mank was a movie. I had nothing else. And there were a few that I was like, okay, that sounds interesting. I actually watched a trailer. Um, what was it? The uh, Billie Holiday one. Um, 
and then yeah, the, the United States versus Billy Holiday. Yeah, and uh, uh, the Sound of Metal. Yeah, which uh, we, we really liked here, actually. We talked a couple oh, of Sound, oh, okay. Sound of Metal really is nice. super brilliant. That was that was my hopeful as far it, as best it, picture is concerned, yeah. Oh, okay. Well, I'll, I'll I think keep that, my yeah, that was that was myself, Jack's favorite. Then. That was, and well, oh, and I, I, well, have you seen it? Like, to be I, fair, I, I did watch it. Oh, you did watch Okay, I, right, I watched then. Sound of Metal, yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Oh. <laughs> all right, then. So I'm going to talk about something other than Sound of Metal. <laughs> no, it's okay if you want to. It's fine. There were some good things about it. Fine. There were some good things about it. <laughs> it like, ended. There are there are op- there are closing credits. That's it. Like it, whoa. it ended. That was it. I, it wasn't in black and white. It didn't some other, Kane. Boom. I have some other positive things to say other than it had an end. But <laughs> but yeah, like it was it was very much like and I feel like this is one of the things that the people complain about with the Oscars. And me being someone who the best film I have seen this year was The Man with the Iron Fists. Um, which is a 2013 film by the RZA. And if you haven't seen it, treat yourself. That's Reza. That's Reza. Watch yeah. It. Yeah. That's Reza. Yeah. It's yeah. so good. Um, so I feel like, yeah, I'm kind of out of the Oscars. Like I watch stuff and like, I like drama. Yes. And I like some of the Oscar pick stuff. Absolutely. But like that detachment of like, not only are these films that I was not mostly not aware of, mm-hmm. but also the detachment of what of these can I actually just sit down and watch? Like Mank is available yes. because I had Netflix. Um, I think it was Sound of Metal and uh, the one with Miami in the title. This is how well I prep for my Oscar stuff. One night, uh, one, one one night, night in Miami, Miami, which wasn't yeah, even nominated for like Best Picture. Yeah, Amazon we're Prime. on uh, yeah Amazon Prime, mm-hmm. which I happen to have. And it's like, but I don't. Where do I, I just have to yep. go rent these? Uh, yeah, like I I would. <laughs> Call call me a millennial. That's fine. But like, I would like access to these. If you are going to be like, these are the best things possible. Mm -hmm. Would you like to show them to people? Would you like to make them readily available more places if they are supposed to be that wild? I I want to say that like I watched like three of them, like renting it via YouTube, you know, so I think most I've got that kind of money. Most of them are available, you know. Right. And, and this is just a sense of what the budget for this podcast is, you know. Um, Jesse couldn't file that under expenses exactly. for the podcast. Yeah. Um, I didn't get reimbursed, so I had to watch what I could. <laughs> <laughs> no, and I think I think that's fair. But, like, also, like, that's a really good starting point, which is, like, Darren, like you mentioned earlier, there was a lot of love spread out almost mathematically equally uh, last night as the Oscars are concerned. Sound of Metal won uh, Best Editing and Best Sound Design to very well earned, I think. Uh, yeah. That's right. I am a millennial, too. I'm way at the top of the millennials. <laughs> Was it Elder Millennial? I'm an Elder Millennial. We used to call ourselves Generation Y. I don't know why that disappeared, mostly because we were a very apathetic generation, so we just <laughs> didn't bother. But in any case... <laughs> The Sound of Metal won for Best Editing and Best Sound Design. Uh, I thought, like, yes, the editing was tremendous. That movie is paced incredibly well. Sound Design, it's a movie about someone who is going through the trauma of going deaf. It was right on point as far as I'm concerned. Very well-earned victories there. Absolutely. Yeah, that sound design. I was when I saw that was up for it and watched it. I was like, yeah, yeah, this is I really did like that. It was and I I enjoy sound. So like there was one of the things I was paying attention to throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. I also have a lot of hearing problems. So the beginning when you're supposed to understand that he's going, he's losing his hearing. And I'm just like, yeah, that's what concerts sound like. 
Oh, oh no. <laughs> yes. Ooh. Oh. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, they, they did a great job in that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I know another. Bring it back. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Darren. No, 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 no. I was just going to say to bring it back to what Jesse was saying there about accessibility, because, I mean, they are all available to rent online if you are in the United States. Um, to be clear, mm-hmm. if you live in Ireland, you will have to wait until later in the week to see Nomadland. Um, you will have to wait until June 11th to see The Father uh, if you live overseas, which is stunning. To Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, it's completely bonkers and insane. Um, that, uh, Judas and the Black Messiah is coming out to rent, I think, later this month as well over here. So if you if you live outside the States, the Oscar movies are even less accessible than they normally are, which is fascinating. Uh, but I do think I do think there is something in what Jesse said there. Like I think Jack's right. You can go online. You can click them. They are theoretically easier <laughs> accessible this year than they they would be. The, theoretically, know, in the abstract, right? Right. Like you know, Milwaukee, but you, where but like, where the I live. The problem is, is a... that you you. Oh, so, yeah. So Milwaukee is a generally is a, a is a smaller city here. We have one or two art house theaters that would play most of these movies. Most years, I'm not able to actually see all of the nominees. This year, I was so yes, I, arguably more accessible. Yeah. I mean, you you were able to. You just chose not to watch Nomadland. Um, but I I do kind of like. I think that there is something there. I'm sorry, that was. <laughs> but no, like I, I think there's, there's something, there's something genuinely interesting in that though, like because they are theoretically more available than ever, mm-hmm. and I I don't subscribe to the weird logic that you see, like the Bill Maher logic, which is like, man, the Oscars are a real bummer this year. Why can't they nominate stuff like they normally do? Like I don't know, Ernest Holocaust dramas, slavery movies. Period epics about people suffering and dying. Why can't we have those fun movies back? Why do we have to have this crop? The Oscars have always been like drawn towards very serious, very heavy handed stuff and weighty themes and stuff like that. I don't think that's the issue. I think that this year, the problem is that the conversation is so weird because there's no theatrical window. So nobody's Mm. talking about these movies at the same time. Like, I, again, I I am a nerdy person who, because I like to hurt myself, occasionally visits IMDb and does things like tracks the number of votes. Like the actual voting score on IMDb is completely irrelevant because that's weighted and it's gamed. And if people feel very strongly about a movie, they will vote it down no matter what. You know, and again, you have to look at things like IMDb resetting ratings for movies like Captain Marvel or Black Panther just to see Mm. how that works. But what's interesting is if you look at the amount of people who have voted for these movies, um, they're only in the low 20, 30, 40 thousands. Like, I would argue, I would not be surprised to discover that this year has the least watched Best Picture slate in the history of the Academy. Um, despite the fact that, as Jack points out, they are more readily available because there's no real conversation or buzz about that many of them. I think, like, Promising Young Woman is probably the buzziest of them, and even that is just people yelling, is this the new Joker? Because we haven't got an actual movie like Joker in the list, so we have to make some sort of vague comparison to Joker. Is this Joker? And it's like, okay, okay, fine, fine. Rest yourselves. Take it easy there. But, like, I would not be surprised if this is the least watched best picture slate in the history of the Academy. Mm. And I think like people are already hedging and they're saying, this is probably the least watched ceremony in the history of the Academy. And, you know, again, they've crunched the numbers. They've looked at the statistics. What tends to happen is, and it's not a surprise. It's like the logic is fairly self-evident when you nominate movies that people have seen and there's a chance of them winning, 
people will tend to tune in because it's like sports. You want to see your team win. <laughs> Mm-hmm. The highest rated ceremony in the history of the Academy was the one where Titanic won, which was the highest grossing movie of all time at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not a surprise. And you look and you see like highs in the 90s as well when you had kind of like dances with wolves and stuff like that. You see even the early 20, 2000s where you had stuff like, say, Return of the King doing its massive sweep. And I do wonder, and again, this is too much of a conversation. We want to talk about Mortal Kombat. We're going to talk about Mortal Kombat in a second, I promise. <laughs> but I, I do wonder about like the future of the Academy as a body that like speaks for what film is in inverted commas. That like again, I, I've joked on this podcast before that for me, the point of the Academy is to convince my parents to watch Parasite. <laughs> in order to do that, they have to no- they have to nominate Joker, they have to nominate Jojo Rabbit, mm. and like they have to nominate Ford versus Ferrari so that my dad will go, yeah, I like these movies. Let's watch the rest of them. And I think this year it's very similar to what Jesse said. My folks will look at that list and they'll go, I have not heard of any of these. I don't know what a Minari is. <laughs> <You know? laughs> that's, that's incredibly true. It's something we've talked about here before, which is like part of the reason for the Oscars to exist is to advertise for the concept of Hollywood. Like it is a big yeah. party that they throw to remind everyone how cool Hollywood, is, the the movie industry in general, which obviously is problematic in its own way. Uh, but all the, like this has also been a very strange and fractured year where the entire system was uh, had the rug pulled out under it because theaters weren't open and people were scrambling for movies and the movies that came out during the normal threshold for the Oscars it was but you know moved fudged a little bit to get more movies in uh, cowards because they're cowards and they didn't want Sonic the Hedgehog to sweep. Uh, <laughs> Best Picture nominee, Bad Boys for Life. That's what I'm preaching. That, no, but I, I mean, I, almost, I honestly great. think, like, if you had kept those rules, you would have ended up with a genuinely interesting slate. You would have had, like, The Invisible Man would have been on there. And I think The Invisible Man would have been a an interesting film that people have actually seen. Mm-hmm. I don't think you would have seen Sonic, I'm afraid. I'm sorry to say, Jack. I don't think you would have seen Bad Boys for Life. I am shocked to say myself. <laughs> but I do think you probably would have seen kind of quirkier fare getting in and by quirkier fare i mean stuff that is actually good mm-hmm. uh but stuff that the academy doesn't normally recognize because it has this whole slate prepared for it of here's anthony hopkins playing a man suffering with dementia which by the way the father is excellent i love the father it's fantastic but it is the very definition of an oscar movie to be clear I'm sorry. um and it's... before we move on we should probably actually talk specifically about oh sorry oh, i was just gonna say what I'm sorry. That was this year. Anthony Hopkins is playing a guy with dementia. That, mm-hmm. He won. And he, won. He, won. he won. He won this I, year. I swear he's already done How that. How did you forget and about I, it? I, I know. I swear like years ago, he's played that role in a movie, but maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> I think I know he did it in Fracture, the Ryan Gosling kind of like legal thriller, which I really love because it's like a 90s legal thriller where like the whole thing is that like Ryan Gosling is I think he's a prosecutor and he's convinced that Anthony Hopkins has like murdered his beautiful trophy Rice Rosamund Pike. But Anthony Hopkins is like, oh, I'm just a dawdling old man suffering from like <laughs> dementia. Huh. 
shame you can't prove that I'm actually a criminal mastermind who will destroy your life. Um, which I kind of like. There, there's a moment. There's a moment, and again, not to get too far off, but I love Fracture so much. There's a moment in Fracture where Gosling realizes that he's been played by Hopkins, and he has to race across town to stop this dawdling, kindly eighty-year-old man from turning off the life support machine on his like dying wife in a hospital. It's stunning. I really, anyway, sorry. But that that's wow. Darren's little crazy forgotten. He also did a, a spiritual sequel to Seven, I think, with Colin Farrell a couple of years ago that nobody, including myself, has seen. Mm. I think it's called like Solaris or Solar or something like that. Something with S and to do with the sun. Um, but it's, it's yeah, Hopkins has done a lot. Hopkins likes money. Um, fair play to him. Like, I like money. Get that check. Yeah. yeah. Good. Yeah, that's exactly. And, and like, and, and like to, to bring it back to actually talking about this year's ceremony, ignoring, okay, for two things we have to talk about. Mama done twerk, which is the big one. Um, Glenn Close, the only bit was Glenn Close twerking, I think, towards Daniel Kaluuya, which is definitely a thing that happened. And you can say that's a 20, very 2021 moment. Sure. Um, and then also the, the, the weird sequencing, like again, Soderbergh's, Soderbergh, Steven Soderbergh came in, he produced the Oscars. He said it was going to feel like a movie. And like to a certain extent, it kind of did in that like it had all the music cues, the cinematography, it was kind of letterboxed, the way it was shot, the fact that all the actors were spaced apart as well. It did have the texture and feel of a movie to a certain extent. And things like uh, Regina King arriving, like she's in, I think Ocean's 13 is basically the touchstone or the joke that people were making there. But she does look really cool arriving. But, but... Soderbergh somewhat overplayed his hand with this whole Oscars gonna be a movie thing because he restructured the show so that normally the awards, the, the order of the awards is variable throughout the, the years, but generally you close on best director, best picture, and then you hit the credits as the cast and crew and production team of the best picture swarm the stage and hug each other and occasionally run out and say, wait, no, you gave it to the wrong movie. Let's just hand it back there. Rewind the trailer there, Glad It's all good. But generally speaking, you end on best picture because it's the big award of the night, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Soderbergh realized this year what we talked about there. Nobody has seen many of these nominees. Nobody is particularly invested in many of these nominees. And I say that as somebody who likes a lot of these nominees. I'm not trashing them. I'm not dissing them. I love Minari with all my heart. I think I, we talked about how much I love Mank. I love Promising Young Woman. Um, you know, that's I love even The Father. Like, these, this is not a, trashing the movies. But nobody has seen them. Mm -hmm. Most of the American public, the people watching ABC, have no idea what any of this is means or is going on. So Soderbergh's solution to this problem it's to look at the races that he has and say, okay, most popular thing that's going to happen this year at the award ceremony is that Chadwick Boseman, beloved icon, dead before his time, star of this massive Marvel superhero franchise, incredible talent, um, two show-stopping performances last year in Defy Bloods and also in Maul Rainey's Black Bottom. He's up for best actor. There is no chance in hell that Chadwick Boseman's going to lose this Oscar so this is going to be a movie. I'm going to structure the Oscars like an arc. Instead of closing on Best Picture like we normally do, we're going to move Best Actor to the end so we can have like Chadwick Boseman's family come up on stage, accept the Oscar. We can talk about how much he meant. We can hug each other. We can acknowledge that this has been a very strange, very weird year, but at least it has a cohesive narrative to it. That's what we're going to do. You should never do that unless you know for sure what the script is going to be on the night. Here's what happens. Joaquin Phoenix, the previous, the winner for the previous year for Joker, walks on stage. 
he gives a weird speech about the importance of acting as an art form. Now, you know, admittedly, Joaquin Phoenix won. He has to give out an Oscar. What you should do is you should do what you do with the supporting categories, which is you gender swap them. So you have like Laura Dern giving out the best supporting actor Oscar. So you should have like Renee Zellweger giving out the best actor Oscar because she's like, Joaquin Phoenix is a great actor. He doesn't exactly radiate like empathy and warmth. You don't look at Joaquin Phoenix and think, man, that is a guy who, if this thing goes pear shaped, if this bit goes wrong, he's going to know what to do and he's going to hold our hand through it and he's going to guide the audience no, he, through this. He is, in fact, a legendary weirdo in interviews. <laughs> he is not charismatic outside of the camera rolling. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So he's not the guy you hired like on this risky gambit you're taking where it could go horribly wrong and egg could end up on everybody's faces. You also don't know for sure that Chadwick Boseman's going to win because like the way the Oscars work, the voters go to PricewaterhouseCoopers, PricewaterhouseCoopers take the envelopes, they hold the envelopes and give them to the presenters before they walk on stage. You also know for a fact that two of your nominees are not present in the room, including Anthony Hopkins who is the second favorite, who just won the BAFTA. Everybody was surprised he won the BAFTA. He's probably not going to win the Oscar. He's a long shot, but you know, if anybody's going to do it, it's going to be Anthony Hopkins. And he is at home in Wales because he's 83 years old and it's the middle of a fucking pandemic. <laughs> All right. So with that in mind, you send Joaquin Phoenix out onto the stage for your big heartwarming moment. He opens the envelope. Anthony Hopkins... And you cut to a still photo of Anthony Hopkins staring at you on a Zoom call. <laughs> Everybody backstage panics. What the fuck is going on? Cut back to Joaquin Phoenix. Joaquin Phoenix does the Joaquin Phoenix thing where he says, uh, Anthony Hopkins can't be with us tonight. The Academy has taken his like, award in trust. Thank you. Good evening. Goodbye. And he walks off stage. And that is the end of your Academy Awards. And it's, it's something like... It's a very 2021 Oscars. Like, let's be frank. And I would have tuned in for that part. That sounds, <laughs> forget the rest of it. That's boring. That sounded like fun to watch. That was a slow motion train wreck. <laughs> yes, it was a bit much. But like Darren said, if you are building up to this, you have to know the winner. The Academy should be able to fudge those rules if you have something set up like this. If you don't want your ceremony to end on a big wet fart, you gotta you gotta know, man. <laughs> Amazing because like Joaquin, like you can tell that Joaquin Phoenix is just not into it. He just drops the envelope and walks off stage. It's like he doesn't like. Okay, thanks everybody. This was our show. Everybody, get up. Let's give a round of applause. Let's all clap. Let's all acknowledge. And it's like, no, the guy who won this award is does is asleep in bed. Anthony Hopkins doesn't even know that he's won. Like, <laughs> he didn't. He didn't give a speech until this morning, where he's like, oh crap, what? <laughs> <laughs> great because like even Hopkins acceptance speech this morning is like uh, you guys know that Chadwick Boseman should have won right we, we know that right we were all expecting that right like he actually singles out Boseman like he's like <laughs> no no and you know it's like okay sure I'll take it and like it's a it's a great performance and like he does deserve it I think I think Boseman would have deserved it I think that Ahmed would have deserved it mm -hmm. I think Hopkins deserves it I'm not the guy I'm not the ride or die guy I'm not like the guy who's like well look there's clearly one best performance this year I think Jesse joked about how we're we're terrible at arguing because we're all like that's a good point I agree with that I understand that I see I see where you're coming from. I, I can see the argument where 
I can see the argument where Bozeman is the best actor this year. I can see the argument where Riz Ahmed is the best actor mm-hmm. this year. I can see the, the argument where Anthony Hopkins is the best actor this year. I don't have a problem with that. I just find it hilarious. That, like, <laughs> all of that. All of that. Well, and, you know, I'm not, this is not me being in favor of fudging the numbers. This is not me saying that. But I'm about to say that sometimes it's okay to fudge the numbers if there is a clear favorite, obviously, like this isn't a this isn't a, a sporting event. This is not a the, I'm going to say the Academy Awards is closer to professional wrestling than it is a American football match in which there is an audience. Fa- there's a heel and there's a face. I'm not saying Anthony Hopkins is the heel. But what I'm saying is you got to have someone overlooking this thing. <laughs> I mean, I really want that Academy's luncheon where Riz Ahmed just smashes um, Anthony Hopkins over the back with a chair. He's like, how do you like the sound of that metal? (laughs) (laughs) That's how we boost the Oscars ratings. I would have watched that. You know, there's there's a part... There's a part of this and Hollywood you would think would be better at this of just knowing what your audience expects, knowing knowing the best way to end your story arc mm-hmm. and like rules are made up. Let's yeah. let's be honest. Rules are made up the way they would do the Oscars. It's all made up anyway. It doesn't really matter. You 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 got to fudge it sometimes. Sometimes for the greater good, you got to fudge it. <laughs> I, I feel like I need to distance myself from Jack here. I, I'm not entirely cool with like rigging the Oscars, to be clear. I do think, I do think when you're doing shit like this, you should let Steven Soderbergh know ahead of time. I feel like somebody in PricewaterhouseCoopers, no matter how late in the day, should have said like, uh, Steven, are you sure you want to do this? Have you thought about what might happen if, and I'm just saying if, like, your choice actor doesn't win. Have you thought about that, Stephen? I, like, that's all it would take. That's how you fix this mess, hopefully. Unless unless somebody did. I want the story to come out that, like, somebody did. And Soderbergh was, like, so sure that he yes. knew what the outcome was. He wasn't going to let some stupid like, PricewaterhouseCoopers executive. Like, Je- <laughs> Jesse, I know you play, you play a lot of, like, tabletop role-playing games. Like, you ever get to that point where your players, like, are about to do something really stupid? And you're like, is this – I just want to make sure. Is Are you sure you want to do this? <laughs> Yeah, it is exactly like that. Be like, can I do that? And you just look them dead in the eye and be like, you can try. (laughs) And you just, you gotta, you gotta let them learn a lesson. (laughs) Yeah, that's why they didn't build to like a a special award or like Mm. have the the climax of that particular arc be and we remember Chadwick Boseman Mm -hmm. we do this and then and then we you have a few things and then he might also win this other thing I'm with you Darren that somebody should have been like (laughs) hold on (laughs) one small hitch here one small hitch soon Uh, all right, so I, I think we've talked enough about Oscar stuff because I think we got on far too long. We need no. to get to the meat of this podcast. So I... let's let's be frank here. We like Oscars. Who cares, Mank? Are we going to be frank about Mank? We're, uh, I'm going to be frank about Mank. Nobody cares about Mank. Everyone cares about Mortal Kombat 2021. That's why people very, are here. It's very true. I 
was so uh, like you know I had heard all spectrums as far as the 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 early reviews or the snippet reviews or the Twitter reviews or whatever you want to call them is people people loved it people hated it oh it's schlock oh it's garbage oh it's actually pretty good I've I heard it all so I went in very neutral uh, and I'll tell you what I had a pretty darn good time watching that movie. That's my that's my summary. It's 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 exactly what a Mortal Kombat movie needs, uh, which is like the loosest of plot in service of getting us to fight sequences. Ooh, you okay. know, I, and okay. I Jessica, oh go ahead, Jessica. Okay, I I I agree, I agree with you mm-hmm. that it should absolutely be very loose plot to get us to fight sequences. I also think those fight sequences should be good. There were two good fight scenes. That movie was not. I'm sorry. Those fight scenes were awful. The one at the very beginning was good. That was a good one. Yep. That was awesome. Yes. The, and the, that's, opening, the, 13, the 13 minute opening scene is like what I want from Mortal Kombat movies. It's a samurai yeah. Western martial arts movie with a dude who can like throw a spike out of his hand and a dude who can freeze like air. That's what I want from Mortal Kombat movie. Give yes. Me Yes, sorry, it was sorry, great. Up on you, Jack. No, it was that was such a good part. The the cinematography was good. Like the the pacing, the editing, the the choreography. That Sanada, the actor, like he's the best actor in the fucking movie. <laughs> he and he really... disappears thirteen minutes in. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> like that was good. I went into Mortal Kombat. Uh, I I was too young when the games were in their like hottest points. So like I know I've never really played the original games. Once they. Once I was old enough, I didn't really get into them. I've seen the first movie. I saw Annihilation the night before, actually, um, for the first time. And I've seen some of the cutscenes from the latest Mortal Kombat. So I basically came in knowing nothing. <laughs> and all I wanted also was, I want good fight scenes. And, and I don't really need it. And I just, that was that was the only good. Okay, and the, uh, the Sonya Blade and... Kano fight scene in the trailer was cool because they did so much inventive fighting with like using things around them mm-hmm. and like it's a really good setup because she's at the disadvantage because he's got his laser eyes now spoilers uh and she doesn't have anything yet so it's like oh that's really neat how how she managed to beat him and wow was the editing and the choreography bad on all the other ones I will be with you I will be with you on editing uh, especially like during the, the final fight sequences when the good guys oh. are not like, like g- give, oh. give us two characters, let those two characters fight. They try to like bounce in between fights. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I can be with you. I will disagree that I think those individual fights each had merit. I personally really liked the, uh, who's the forearm guy. I like that. Oh, Goro. Goro. I liked the Goro other guy fight. I don't even remember his name. Cause you like some Moro Goro. <laughs> Who was the main character? What was his name? I've forgotten it. <laughs> Cole. What's uh, Cole Young? Cole the Young. Most he, you know, boring. He, you know, he's called, he's called Cole Young because it's like, we need a young protagonist. <laughs> what if his name was Cole Young? It's like, yeah, Nolan already got like protagonist, so we can't have another character <laughs> called protagonist. Let's just call him Young. He's Young. That's his name. I, it's amazing his name wasn't Hero. Hero Young. Exactly. Yeah, Hero Young. <laughs> 
you know what? I liked his Goro fight. I thought that was I thought that was a lot of fun. I thought like you know his powers coming his uh that bumped up your Goro with the Goro. Oh dang! <laughs> four thumbs up. Because uh, <laughs> Goro has four On arms. A Rolo. Uh, I, no, I I liked yeah, and I feel like I'm doing this solo. I liked the Jax guy with the hammer fight in theory only because it ended with Jax popping his head like a water balloon. The the fight, listen, it's it's a movie in which someone's hat saws a demon in half. How can we complain about this? I, I'll tell you how I can complain about <laughs> Watch it. Watch us, Jack. That's what <laughs> I'm <I'll laughs> yeah. because, because earlier this year, I watched The Man with the Iron Fists. Oh, and the man with the iron fists is an extremely loose plot with a large ensemble cast where every single member of the cast has a very specific gimmick fight style and weapon. Mm -hmm. And it nailed it. And that's what Mortal Kombat should have been. And it was nowhere close to as good. And yet it should have been there. It had everything it needed Listen, to get on so that what you would level. Say, Jesse, is that it? Is that it didn't rise to the occasion? It did not. Uh, what What I'm saying here is that uh, is that uh, uh, Nomadland isn't as good as Citizen Kane, and therefore it's garbage. This is uh, this is a false Whoa, equivalency okay. here, Jesse. <laughs> oh, okay, 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 but, okay. Oh, go ahead. You go, you go Jesse. I was like, just gonna say we'll tag like, team him. We'll tag team him. You go but, first. <laughs> but like false equivalency of No Man's Land, Citizen Kane. Okay, but like. <laughs> What you wanted out, what you said you wanted out of Mortal Kombat, Man with the Iron Fist delivered better. Uh, There's no argument. There is a good equivalent. I am not arguing that it delivered it better. What I'm saying is that Mortal Kombat did not fail because we are comparing it to another movie. It may not have done it as well. Absolutely. Go see Man with the Iron Fist. Great movie. Can can I ask a question, right? Please. This really, really, really bothered me, right? This is a movie... About Mortal Kombat. Yeah. Mortal Kombat is a tournament between Outworld and Earthrealm. Thanks why, for getting my note. <laughs> why? 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 Is this movie so preoccupied with mythology, lore, politicking, scheming, backstabbing, behind getting to a tournament? That is the entire point of the exercise that never actually arrives and instead serves as a gigantic sequel hook, like the picture of Johnny Cage hanging on the wall. Like, my big problem is you're making a Mortal Kombat movie. Make a Mortal Kombat movie. Don't make what is, like, very clearly a prequel or franchise launching pad to finally, at some stage, making a Mortal Kombat movie. Give took- us a movie like the the Paul W. S. Anderson movie, where the like Enter the Dragon. Sorry, sorry, go Jack. You, you go. Sorry, apologies. I just, I, just, I just have I have I have several points to rebut your. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, 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 Jack. I apologize. <laughs> so uh, you got me started on Mank. <laughs> this is just this is just you rebutting uh my my hating on Meg. no i think i think actually that was a really good call because no i'm sorry they never they never got bogged down with any of the plot uh, every single plot 
point was summed up in like half of a line as an excuse to get to more fighting, which is exactly what a Mortal Kombat movie needs. If you have an actual tournament with actual rules, that's going to take time to set up and prepare for. We don't have time for that in the Mortal Kombat movie. The bad guys want to fight now. We fight now. It's perfect. But you have time for Sonya. But you have time for Sonya Blade to take us through her little montage of exposition, and for like mm-hmm. Cole Young to point out that combat isn't spelt with a K, and to get all these characters who are kind of introduced and dropped in, and all this scheming and plotting. Like that—that's the thing that really bugs me about this is that it feels very much like it's just trying to cram as much lore as possible into this movie without actually focusing on making it like a functional. Mortal Kombat movie like I think like Paul W.S. Anderson's version is far superior to me because it says look it's not going to be exactly like the video game we're not going to fit in all the characters from the video game we're just going to give you cool fight scenes in cool locations involving a tournament for people who combat one another in a way that is occasionally mortal (laughs) that is what we are doing Um, and like I feel like like the way in which so take I read that 13 minute introductory sequence with Scorpion and Sub-Zero is for me the best part of the movie. Mm. It's I mm. love, I love, love, love that sequence. Like when that sequence played, I was in the bag. And it's amazing how quickly the movie lost me after that when it introduces Sub-Zero in the present day as like Magneto, but with ice. It Because it, it, like if it does this weird thing where it becomes like a superhero movie, it becomes like a generic not where like Sub-Zero is wandering through Los Angeles causing hailstorms and fighting commandos with guns and stuff and being described as a superhuman and being tracked across history with red twine and photos and sketches that explain Mm -hmm. that all of this, Mm -hmm. all of this, like, like Sonya stops just short of saying, Cole Young, you're about to be part of a much larger universe. (laughs) Um, And like that, like that, that for me is too much of itself. That's like, that's a little bit like, you're taking this a little bit too seriously. Make a good Mortal Kombat movie and I'll come back for the second Mortal Kombat movie. Don't try and tell me that you've got Joe Tassim signed for five movies and just expect me to keep showing up because he's there. I like Joe Tassim. I think he's great. But, you know, I feel like let him be great. Don't promise me that he will be great at some point in the next mm-hmm. four Mortal Kombat movies you're planning to make. But my my big issue is like, it's just that fecking thing where it's like, all of this lore, all of this story, all of this background detail, and the movie's weird tonal inconsistency, where the entire point of the character of Kano is that the movie gets to have its cake and eat it. So the movie gets this big moment where Kung Lao stands in front of the camera, low angle shot, camera kind of dollies in, music swells. Kung Lao says, I am Kung Lao descendant of the mythical Kung Lao. All the Mortal Kombat fans in the audience punch the air, their fists risen. It's like, yeah, this is hardcore fan service. And then we cut back to Kano, the music cuts, and he says, am I supposed to know who that is? And it's like, pick a fucking lane. (laughs) Either be the serious, lore-driven Mortal Kombat movie that you seem to want to be deep inside yourself, or be the quirky wry, self-aware, banter-driven, well, we're not taking it seriously. We're making the jokes before you and the audience can, you know, so don't, don't laugh at us. Movie that you seem like Kano seems to want to be in. Pick one of the two. Like, like there are moments that I like with Kano. Like, I, I like the move span. I like the joke he makes where Liu Kang starts moves, like, move spamming him with a low kick. I laughed at that bit. <laughs> but every 
other moment with Kano was like the movie saying, we know this is a cliche. We know that regular audiences don't care about this stuff. So we're going to just like puncture it and we're going to make a joke about it. And it's like, you know what would be better than making a joke after doing a bad thing? N- not doing the bad thing that would be I'm going to I'm I feel like if you, I'm going like to stop you for a second here cuz I I will ag- no, no, no. I will agree with you for uh for part of this is that Kano is as bad as everyone accuses Marvel movies of being like no Marvel movie has a character <laughs> as uh insulting towards its own movie as Kano does to Mortal Kombat uh I will agree with you there I think that like and, you know, obviously we watch movies differently. We take in different information. For me, all of the lore dump, all of the like backstory was so short as to be forgotten immediately as soon as the next fight scene starts. And so, like, for me, none of those lore dumps. Why do it at all? That, like, yeah. why, do it at all? why not just have the fight scene? Like, why you don't need the lore dumps. If you're going to forget the lore dumps, then don't do the lore dumps. Don't do the lore dumps. Joke about the lore dumps and then ignore the lore dumps. It's, uh, sorry. Yeah, sorry. I, I, I agree Darren with that. I'm very angry this week. I don't know why. I didn't actually hate it that much. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I I agree with that because it's it is I I and I, I agree concur. That, Do you concur? Yeah, uh, it's the they did. Kind of what you were saying, Jack, where they did very quickly, like, hey, we're going to say this thing. It's very quick fan service. We're going to go to the fight scene. We're moving on. Mm. And if they did that, like once or twice, I would have been fine with it. Freaking thirty minutes of the runtime of the movie can be equated to a half line that shouldn't exist because it has no setup, it has no payoff, and it doesn't matter to the movie. It only matters to someone who knows stuff outside of the movie. I I don't know. Like and and like I'm not going to 100% disagree with you because yeah, I mean it it's a schlocky movie. It is a schlocky action movie. To me, though, like you do need like you need the context for why people have superpowers or arcana, as it's so often called in the Mortal Kombat movie. (laughs) And like you do need you do need some context for why people are fighting, who a person is, all that sort of stuff. So it worked for me because we got really fun fight sequence and more importantly, really fun death sequences, which, of course, is part of the Mortal Kombat canon. I mean, this is a small thing, mm -hmm. but I found myself really frustrated with the CGI blood. I've never really glommed a CGI blood. I like blood pack blood. Mm -hmm. Like, Like there's the moment, I think, even in the introductory sequence with Scorpion where he plunges the dagger into your man's head, pulls it out, and you get a CGI blood splatter. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, damn, I just really want a squib. I want him to like (laughs) stick that dagger into his head and just have it like Verhoeven all (laughs) over his face. That's what I want. Like Tarantino, Uh, Takeshi, Mike sort of thing. Just pop it in and just have a geyser explode. Like that's what I want. Um, And like even the Jax thing that you mentioned where he crushes his skull, which is a great moment. Mm -hmm. Like it's it's a very much a... Boom! This is what the movie is trying to do. Moment. Mm-hmm. I again, it, it because it's CGI. It felt weirdly weightless to me because I know that like the actor playing Jax just like put his fist together like that, and they CGI'd in everything else. He didn't like hit a balloon with a mask on it that was filled with tomato <laughs> sauce or something like that, and so it had kind of mass and weight. Like it's a small, it's a very small thing, and it like I, I don't like. I'm not going to pretend that's a reason why I I didn't react to the movie, but like when I was watching it, I was thinking. 
Yeah, I I miss squibs. Mm. I I miss like actual. No, I'm gonna. I, I, I don't miss actual <laughs> movies. Those were the old days before union, before safety regulations. Yeah. <laughs> I miss corn syrup. I miss that. that yeah. I I agree with you on that. I uh, sort of. So I they also felt weightless to me, but I think it was in a different way. Um, also, kind of in the way you were talking about, where the and I'm. They probably needed more time for whoever was doing the CGI to make it look better. Um, because unfortunately, a lot of times they're like, we need this and we need it in like this time frame. And we know that's yeah. not as much uh, as you actually need, but have it done and we'll take what it is. And I definitely felt that way about the flying lady, too. She looked terrible flying around. Uh, she looked like freaking green screen that they have on Annihilation. Um, and to, to be fair, she but, did, she didn't need to look good because she's just flying. But when you're like making a Mortal Kombat movie, blood needs to look good. That's yeah. What I, yeah. But the the death scenes that you enjoyed, I think that again, kind of a reference to the game. Like I'm aware of fatalities, but because I'm not super into the game, so like, oh yeah, that dragon one. Like I saw it, and I was like, that's probably a fatality. Cool. But because but because the fight scenes weren't interesting. And because the characters were so incredibly boring, uh, <laughs> I didn't care. Like the climax of it, which is cool death scene, doesn't matter because I was bored up to that point. And so my my level of interest is rather than climbing and then being like, oh, that was neat. It's just, oh, okay. <laughs> and we're back to this, this movie that I'm still unfortunately watching. Yeah. And no, and I think that's like that obviously just comes down to a little bit of our different perspectives and, you know, how we enjoy a movie. You know, what I will say is my opinion could very well be colored as I was watching with one of my children uh, who loved all the blood and gore. Uh, and so, like, I was feeding a little bit off of that energy. Uh, this was his first R-rated movie. He was very excited, um, yeah. as I deemed it appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, I'm a good parent. I, d I did do the research into why it was rated R. And it was just like, oh, just a lot of blood and death. And I was like, yeah, he can deal with that. He's watched me play bad video games um, before. And so, like, I think a lot of that was like. I do kind of want the I, I want the or rated Mortal Kombat where. It's, oh, sorry. oh, yeah. I want the or rated Mortal Kombat where like Sub-Zero deals with weighty themes that merit an or move, an or rating. Um. <laughs> exactly. Adult. It's not because of the blood. It's the adult themes. That like it, you know. <laughs> Sub Zero. Sub Zero deals with his midlife crisis and impotence. That's, that's the kind of more. <laughs> so, so they, they just said it was my cold hands. Right. Um, so uh, Sub Zero <laughs> is uh, has found uh, a young mistress, and it's about him balancing the relationship with his wife and his young mistress. Oh yeah, very weighty adult themes. But yeah, and so like I don't. It, to to me. Uh, I'm I'm not saying this is a flawless movie at all, <laughs> but it was it was Got fun it. enough. I will be 100% with you as far as the ending fight sequences being very poorly edited as far as pacing them and giving them room to breathe. Though I'm with Jesse that uh, the the trailer fight scene between Sonya and Kano was super awesome. Yeah, that was mm -hmm. good. I I think that's a super. Uh, valid too like if you watch it with yeah. someone who's enjoying it or you are watching it for a particular thing mm -hmm. then that absolutely you know changes how you feel about it and yeah, not absolutely. in a negative way mm -hmm. um 
there's stuff that I've watched with someone who I knew they were enjoying it or I was watching it for a particular reason. Like I'm not the biggest fan of Citizen Kane as a movie, but watching it through the lens of, but how does, how do they do lighting and cinematography? Mm-hmm. And like seeing that, that is interesting. That <laughs> is cool. As a movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not my favorite thing, but it's it's good. It's fine. It's fine. But like, but yeah, through that lens, mm-hmm. watching it to be able to dissect it, to be able to talk about it, to be able to feed off someone else's energy of enjoying that as well, mm-hmm. that'll absolutely shape my opinion of that. And I did not have someone next to me who was like, "Yeah, blood." <laughs> so I feel like there was somebody inside the back of my head doing that though. So it all <laughs> like, "Hey, blood!" Like, like, like the. This, this is the thing. And I think we, we talked about this. We talk, I think we talked about this when we talked about like with Will and movies during the pandemic. I think we talked about, we talked about like Wonder Woman. Mm. Like one of the big things about like Wonder Woman 1984 was this idea of the, the big conspiracy mythology that you get. It's like, oh my God, the initial reviews for this were positive and excited and they loved it. And the later reviews, well, they were more cynical and grounded and they hated it. And they were obviously right. What was up with the early ones? And it's like, oh, clearly Warner Brothers just like paid a bunch of people to give good reviews. And it's like, no, no. What happened was they released the movie theatrically overseas and critics saw those movies in cinemas crowded with people who were enjoying this movie because it's structured like a blockbuster. And we talked about like the importance of editing mm. and the idea that like when you're editing a blockbuster, you leave pauses and tempos for the audience to go, wow, clap that you don't have when you're watching it at home. Mm-hmm. And that perhaps plays to a different reaction. And I do, I watching this at home, I will admit, part of me did wonder... Would this play much better if I were watching it in a crowded cinema at midnight yes. with lo- lots of people with lots of beer and, and like, <laughs> you know, sort of like just in the mood for it, you know, like, would it play to that crowd? That's kind of like, I found myself wanting, and, and like, you know, we're not perfect. We are like, there's no such thing as objective reviews or whatever. And, and Jesse's right. There's no one right way to watch a movie. You watch a movie in different ways at different times with different people. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did like watch Mortal Kombat at home and was thinking, maybe this isn't the optimum way for me to be watching this, even though I want to watch it, even though it's available for me to watch. And even though this is the only way I can safely watch it right now, maybe this isn't a model that suits it, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think like yeah. you've. Aaron misses theaters. You, I, I miss theaters too, but that, that you've hit the nail right on the head is this is, this particular is a movie that you need that kind of crowd energy to to get you through the low points because if you st- if you just watch it and are very clinical about it yeah you're going to have a very bad time because I love schlock schlock does this schlock isn't good like that's the whole point about it like and so I think I think yeah, you've done a, a better job summating than I ever could. Way to go, Darren! And it's all about mank all the time. <laughs> <laughs> um, but by the way, small detail that I did notice when Jesse was talking about this, and which I kind of love because like this is the Mank and Mortal Kombat podcast, mm-hmm. so it's the Mankle Combat episode. But I do love that like Jesse's like you know. Mortal Kombat doesn't really make sense if if you don't come into it not knowing all this detail, the background, the lore, and the story, and the history behind it. And it makes all these references to things that maybe we can't assume that ordinary audiences just take for granted. Mm-hmm. And yet, there we go, Jesse got it. I do love that Like that's basically the same criticism you can make of Mank, yep. even though they are arguably as far apart mm-hmm. in terms of genre as two movies can be. 
but like those criticisms are perfectly valid on those terms. Uh, I think I kind of love that. It's the connecting thread that that connects both the high and the low brow <laughs> in our high low brow movie podcast. I think that's beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> and and I think that's the best way yeah. we well can done, end you did it. this episode. Jesse did it. <laughs> so glad I left my mark on my first time here. Flawless victory. Yes. <laughs> what? Wait. Was it? Was it? Was it friendtality? What's the? What's the, like the? Oh, uh, I friendship. Think, it you just can do a friendship. friendship. Is it just fr- yeah. friendship? It's just friendship. friendship. You got friendship. You got like babality. I'm really disappointed that babalities weren't like for all the lore that they crammed in here. I feel like they picked the easy <laughs> stuff, like the stuff that you know you kind of look at. And you go, well, this is what I expect from Mortal Kombat movie. I would love to see a Mortal Kombat movie where they do like a friendship or a babality or something like that. Or they like just bring in like Rambo um, from like the downloadable contact pack. And it's just like, hey, it's Sylvester Stallone. He's here now and he's playing Rambo. Like I like that's the aspect of the games that I want. Like that's the like the weirdness of Mortal Kombat, not the seriousness of it. Like the the sense of Mortal Kombat when you're playing it, that this was created by a bunch of like college students Mm -hmm. who were just programming in their spare time whatever the hell they wanted to do fondness for like enter the dragon and pop culture in general. That's like, that's, that's the tone that I, Darren, I have, I have the pitch for this. Then I have the pitch, which is, so the sequel is one of our hidden characters. Mank. First of all, yes. (laughs) Mank is there. Uh, He's just throwing booze bottles. His his fatality is that he hits you over the head with the script and steals credit. Um, (laughs) Okay. So in a sequel to Mortal Kombat, uh, you know, once again, uh, Outworld is, is, is switching up the rules. So our heroes from Earth have to pull all the great heroes from all time. Oh, uh, from yeah. all time and what? dimensions, uh, uh, Earth dimensions, if you will, like separate, mm-hmm. separate, like parallel dimensions. So you get RoboCop, you get Rambo. Yeah. And you know what's really, really depressing about this? Have you seen the trailer for Space Jam 2, A New Legacy? N- no. Yeah. 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 Jesse knows what I'm talking about here. People are freeze framing. So the it's set in the server verse is where a new legacy is called. I love this. This is how we're ending the Mortal Kombat episode. But it's it's a Warner Brothers property. It's an AT&T property. It will be releasing on HBO Max. I feel like it's associated. I feel like it's, it's not enough of a leap to kind of jump there. Mm-hmm. But it's set in the server verse. And in the server verse is all the intellectual property and public domain material that Warner Brothers own. So people have been freeze framing the trailer and spotting. And this is insane. So, like, in the background of one shot, you can see Burgess Meredith's penguin and Danny DeVito's penguin cheering on. But, like, the Iron Giant pops up at one moment as well, like Ready Player One. What? But in one of the most... No, it gets weirder. Somehow it gets even weirder. (laughs) The most surreal cameo that appears in the background is Alex and his droogs from A Clockwork Orange cheering on Lola Bunny. What? Yep, this is in like a G family friendly movie. Warner Brothers, like, yep, we're just bringing out the intellectual property. And like, part of me, like, part of me just wants it to be the Mortal Kombat movie because it feels like that level of crassness works there. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm not sure it does for like, I'm not sure like you want to explain to your kids. So, Daddy, can I see Alex's adventures? Alex Delarge seems like a fascinating character. I'd like to go and see his son. Adventures. Let me tell you about ultra violence. <laughs> bit of the old uh, in out there um, <laughs> that's that's horrifying 
I did not know uh, about any of that because no jam will be better than the Space Jam. Uh, I, I am not mentally prepared for a Space Jam 2, uh, only the original. So, holy moly, that's that's disturbing to hear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, watch the trailer. Um, we should play the we should play the trailer out over the credits as we close. Absolutely, um, absolutely. Uh, Speaking of, well, that so that's how we're ending it. That's a weird note to end on, but that's what you get because we're live. <laughs> Thanks everybody for watching uh, and or listening to this later. Once again, I've been Jack Packard. I've been Darren Mooney, looking for some space to jam in another pun. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I'm Jesse Galena, and I can't follow that. <laughs> Jesse, we believe you can fly. <laughs> oh, bye. <laughs> <laughs>